Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Our speaker this evening is the youngest of ten children from Kansas. Father Andrew Hoffer studied history, philosophy, and classics at Benedictine College. After continuing his studies in St. Andrews, Scotland, and earning a Master's of Letters in Medieval History, Father Andrew entered the Order of Preachers and was ordained a priest. Father Andrew completed his PhD in Theology at the University of Notre Dame. His research appears in several theological journals, and he is the author of the book Christ in the Life and Teaching of Gregory of Nazianzus, as well as the editor of Divinization, Becoming Icons of Christ Through the Liturgy. Father Andrew currently resides at the Dominican House of Studies in Washington, D.C., where he serves as the Master of Students and Associate Professor of Patristics and Ancient Languages on the Pontifical Faculty of the Immaculate Conception. Please join me in welcoming back Father Andrew Hoffer. I, I want to thank Daniel and Monica uh, for the invitation and for all the logistics of bringing me here this evening and Father Benedict, the uh, tall Dominican there who's taking a photograph, uh, <laughs> for being my socius, my companion this evening and uh, helping me uh, to make sure I got here on time and, uh, and everything. What I'd like for us to do is to begin with a reading from the second letter of St. Peter. So I'm going to read a short passage from 2 Peter chapter 1. It's 2 Peter 1, verses 2 to 4, and then lead us in a prayer. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, that through these you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of passion and become partakers of the divine nature. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks and praise for the precious and very great promises you have given us. We ask you now to pour forth your Holy Spirit upon us that we, at this time, may come to understand something of the mystery of divinization, of becoming partakers of the divine nature. We make this prayer in the name of Jesus, and we pray as he taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Mother of God, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As Daniel mentioned, I have a handout. And 
uh, this handout is organized in the way of a scholastic argument. The Dominicans were founded 800 years ago, so in the 13th century, and some of our Dominican friars were university professors. Two of our most famous ones were St. Albert the Great and St. Thomas Aquinas, two doctors of the Universal Church. And the handout actually presents the lecture in a form of what you would find if you read St. Thomas's Summa of Theology. Okay, so that uh, if you just look at that handout, <coughs> Uh, you will see uh, how uh, I proceed with imagined objections. Okay, so these are objectors uh, who saying different things. You know, this can't be true, this can't be true, this can't be true. Uh, and then I give an authority. Uh, in the 13th century, in the Latin, it was called sed contra, but against this, and there would be some authority. And then I give an argument. Okay, so that's the bulk of the lecture. And then if you turn the page, going through the steps of the argument, then I give replies to the objection, okay? And then at the end, a prayer, and then a brief bibliography, okay? So that's the, the format for this evening. And if you go back to the, the front of it, I want us simply to consider this word theosis. Theosis, or uh, if you were actually speaking in Greek, you could say theosis, but in good English, theosis, uh, th this Greek word theosis means deification or divinization. Deification or divinization. When I use these terms, I use them e uh, equ uh, equivalently. So that uh, deification is divinization, and both of them are translations of theosis. Okay, sometimes others will make distinctions. I think really it's, it's all the same in terms of, of what I want to emphasize. And that when you hear then deification, uh, it goes back to a, a Latin formula that means to make God, okay? To make God. Uh, it means to make that which is not divine to be divine, or that which is not a God to be a God, all right? So what we're doing then is having uh, this time to think about the mystery of Christian divinization, the mystery of Christian divinization. And I want to begin with objections. Okay, so this is where, in terms of just thinking about uh, what's at stake here and why some people would say, this is all wrong. So I have four objections, and I'd like for us to go through each of the four. The first is, that doesn't sound Christian. To be a god? Did you wake up this morning and say, I'm a god? Okay. Someone could say, I've been a Christian all my life, and I've never heard that we are made gods. That sounds like it's something pagan, something Mormon, something of the New Age. Because there are different uh, peoples, different movements, uh, different religions that have different understandings of divinization, deification. And let's just think about the strength of this argument. Uh, perhaps it's true that many Christians have never heard that they are divinized, deified. And if they uh, hear that for the first time, it's like, huh? I've been a Christian all this time. Okay, that sounds something pagan. Pagan or, or Mormons. Uh, Mormons have a, a very strong notion of deification or something of the New Age. You know, like we're all, uh, we're all little gods in, in this New Age movement. All right, so, so somebody could just say, no, no, no. Okay, that's not Christian. That's one objection. 
we're not going to get to the uh, reply to the objection until later. I just want you to appreciate that this could be an objection. Another objection is, that sounds like the height of blasphemy. What arrogance, what pride to say that you are gods. Okay, th that, that's awful. In fact, doesn't it sound like what we heard in Genesis when the serpent was speaking to Eve? And when the serpent uh, was there uh, wanting Adam and Eve to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent's words are these, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. It sounds like God didn't want Adam and Eve to be like God. And the serpent was luring Adam and Eve and saying to them, hey, if you eat this, which is against God's commandment, you will be like God. Okay? And so then someone could say, well, that's, that's the first sin. And it's a sin of pride. No, this is blasphemy. Blasphemy. That's a strong objection. The third objection is, that nonsense from Greek mythology and philosophy tainted Eastern Christianity. In the West, we have the pure Christian faith of being saved from our sins through justification by the blood of Jesus. Okay, so sometimes people just hear of deification and they think, that's Eastern Christians. And by the way, they got that not from the revelation of God, but because there were all those Eastern pagan myths, uh, and there were those Eastern Greek philosophers, uh, uh, the Platonists, the Stoics, uh, who had things like deification. And, and really, in the West, we have steered clear from that. Okay? So that's another objection to this. The fourth objection is we become... We're deified? We're divinized? In all my problems? In all the sufferings I have? That's too good to be true. It's too good to be true. I just don't want to have pain. I just don't want to have suffering. I'm not interested in becoming a god. I just want to get through my day. I, uh, really. So in this objection, it's too good to be true. I, and, and I'll settle for much less. Okay? So those are four different objections. I myself do not hold those positions. Have you ever uh, thought of uh, these objections before? Yeah, so so these, are, these are some things that are out there in different ways, and I just want to put them out uh, to be explicit. Because what's at stake here is a lot. In fact, what is at stake is the very, is the very essence of our faith, of why God has done great things for us. All right, now the authority. The authority comes uh, from John chapter 10. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? That's Psalm 82, 6. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent to the world, you are blaspheming because I said, 
I am the Son of God. So what our Lord does in John chapter 10 is he quotes the psalm and he wants people to see how there's uh, an a fortiori argument here. What do I mean? That already in scripture, it says to those to whom the word of God is addressed, you are gods. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I am the son of God. Well, if, if it's okay to have scripture speak of those to whom the word of God is addressed as gods, how much stronger, how much, more, how much more true it is to see that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay? So this is just taken as, as the foundation, and then you see, oh, it's even stronger then uh, to see that, that Jesus is the Son of God. So this is very interesting, that divinization, deification, is taken as something standard. And it's something, something from the Psalms, something that Israel prayed regularly. All right, so what I'd like for us to do now is to go step by step in my argument, where my argument is that deification, divinization, is precisely what happens when our nature, made to the image of God, is taken up in the life of grace as the beginning and preparation for heaven's glory by the sanctification given the Holy Spirit to go through the Son as we dare to approach our Father. We see this teaching repeatedly in the Bible, the prayer of the church and the sacraments and liturgy, magisterial teaching, the teachings of witnesses to tradition, and in the lives of all the holy ones, especially the Holy Mother of God. All right, so here, uh, and just in terms of breaking this down a bit, that when we were created, we were created to the image of God by our nature. Already in nature, there's something of us imaging God. And then after nature, there is grace. Grace not only heals our wounds, but elevates our nature. Okay? Grace does not destroy nature, but perfects it. And so then the nature is divinized by grace, and it's a preparation for glory, the glory of heaven. So that in terms of human, uh, humanity, you can find humanity uh, in terms of nature, grace, glory. And so there we see divinization uh, at work. And that it's very Trinitarian. So that it's precisely in the incarnation, in the Son of God becoming the Son of Mary, uh, that we then uh, are raised up through him by the gift of his spirit to be with the Father forever. That, that's what is happening. It, it's, it's the meaning of the mystery of grace and of glory. And you can see this repeatedly. So what I'd like for us to do is just to look at these different sources to see how true, how broad this teaching is. Uh, each time I give just a few examples, okay? So I could give a whole course on divinization. Well, we don't have that much time, uh, so it's just a, an evening together. So I begin with the Bible. It's a very good place to begin with some biblical witnesses. Uh, the first is that uh, witness from Genesis chapter 1 in terms of creation. So in terms of Genesis 1, 26 to 27, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that sweet creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So to think about how we are made to the image of God, to the image of God, and how wonderful it is because in Colossians, we read that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Colossians chapter 1. And, uh, and so there's this dynamism of our creation uh, in a way that uh, helps us think about image and its relation to Christ. Okay? So it's already, uh, it's already there, something of, of God's intentionality about why he made the human being different. God made the human being different from the rest of the world, okay? Uh, and uh, I remember once, uh, years ago, I, I heard a, a teacher uh, uh, lift up, she, she lifted up an image of the world. And it was an image of the earth from space. And it was a beautiful image. But she said, when, when uh, God made the world in God's image, and so when you look at the world, you look at God. So I, as a college student, you know, I, it's like, <laughs> no, no, um, actually, it wasn't the world. It was a human being. It was a human being. And uh, it was in front of everybody. But I just, I just thought, I, I, I thought, I thought it was an important point because I, I uh, so, so, uh, you know, teachers, by the way, I've been teaching for a while now. Teachers have good days, bad days, okay? But you have to think that there's something different about the human being, something more special about the human being than the world, just in terms of, you know, you could also say world as being all human beings, but, you know, God so loved the world. But there's something about the human being that is just very, very special and is different from everything else on this earth. Uh, and it's related to the teaching of divinization. Then we already saw something from Psalm 82 and that quotation from John 10. Matthew 5, uh, Matthew 5, 46 to 48 is about perfection. So, uh, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you salute only your brethren, what more are you doing than others? Do, you not, do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect? Ooh, yes. Especially a perfection in charity. Because that's what our Lord is talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount. Being perfect in love. God is love, as we read twice in the first letter of St. John. 1 Corinthians 11.1, uh, uh, imitate me for I imitate Christ. Uh, that St. Paul, Paul knows that our life as Christians is in imitation of Jesus Christ. We are anointed with his spirit. Uh, or Galatians 4.4-7, in terms of that reading from Galatians, it's about the spirit of adoption that we have received based upon the incarnation. But when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So through God, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir. Or 1 John 3, 1 through 3. 1 John 3, 
1 through 3. See what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Do you see how there's this dynamism that we're God's children now, and there's going to be something even greater in glory. And that just as God is pure, we're called to be purified. We're called to be pure like God. Today, Laetare Sunday at Mass, we heard uh, the reading, uh, the gospel reading of the man born blind and his healing. And there we heard, I am the light of the world. You remember that? I am the light of the world. Well, actually in John's gospel, it had already appeared in John 8. And I want us to think about, I am the light of the world. In 1 John 1, we read, God is light. God is light. And in him, there is no darkness. You know, God is light. Well, of course, so Jesus can say, I am the light of the world. And in Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. Do we just need to explain this? Oh, one is Joannine theology and the other is Matthean theology and they really have nothing to do with one another? No. The reason why Jesus says, you are the light of the world, is because he is the light of the world. And when he calls his disciples to himself, he actually shares who he is with them. That's what it means to be Christian, is to be in the one body of Christ. He is our head. We are the body. You don't find a head without a body. You don't find a body without a head. All one. We are called to be his light. And so in terms of being divinized, uh, that we share the good news, that Jesus came to proclaim the truth. Uh, for this I was born, for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. And that's what we Christians can do by being divinized, to go out and testify to the truth, do what Jesus himself does. Now, in terms of, that's just a sampling of the biblical witness. You go down to sacraments and liturgy. Uh, uh, every time when the chalice is prepared during the preparation of the altar and the offerings, uh, the, the prayer said in a very low voice, by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. Okay, to think about that. In terms of the water being mingled in the wine, and then that sharing. Okay, because we're called to be immersed. Immersed in the divinity of the Lord. Yesterday, we celebrated the solemnity of the Annunciation, and the, the collect for March 25th is this. O God, who willed that your word should take on the reality of human flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary, grant, we pray, that we who confess our Redeemer to be God and man may merit to become partakers even in his divine nature. Okay, now, you might say, I don't remember this kind of language. Well. Actually, there's a reason why English speakers didn't remember this kind of language for many years, because it wasn't translated like this. Okay, so it wasn't in terms of uh, becoming partakers of uh, even in his divine nature. For many years, we heard uh, in the old sacramentary uh, that uh, went away in 2011, 
God our Father, your word became man, was born of the Virgin Mary. May we become more like Jesus Christ, whom we acknowledge as our Redeemer, God and man. Okay, so then I provide the Latin here. Uh, and the, uh, the, today's Roman collect uh, in English uh, faithfully conveys uh, the Latin. Okay, so in terms of that, uh, and you can, uh, 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 I might translate a couple little things slightly differently, but it's a very good translation, what we have now. And, and, and by the way, the partakers of divine nature is a direct quotation from 2 Peter 1. Okay, so in terms of the consortes, uh, uh, divine naturae. Uh, partakers of divine nature in the Latin, if you go to the Vulgate and compare it uh, from 2 Peter 1 to the Roman Collect. Um, also, in terms of uh, just thinking about uh, the solemnity of the body, most holy body and blood of Christ, in the Office of Readings, uh, the Church has for the second reading an Episculum uh, from St. Thomas Aquinas. And at the very beginning of that reading is, since it was the will of God's only begotten Son that men should share in his divinity, he assumed our nature in order that by becoming man, he might make men gods. Okay, that's what St. Thomas Aquinas says, and that's what the church reads every time she celebrates the solemnity uh, of the most holy body and blood of Christ. Okay, he wrote that uh, for that new feast day in the 13th century, Corpus Christi. Right now, if you turn to the other side, Moving along, in terms of magisterium, okay, so just uh, what I did for uh, here with the Catechism of the Catholic Church, I'm not going to go through any of these catechism numbers. I just wanted to put some numbers out there. So if you wanted to have the time to study the Catechism of the Catholic Church on divinization, these would be some of the key texts, not all the key texts, some. And then just an example from St. John Paul II when he issued his indiction for the great jubilee year of 2000, Incarnationis Mysterium. Uh, he said, proclaiming Jesus of Nazareth, true God and perfect man, the church opens to all people the prospect of being divinized and thus becoming more human. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so in terms of being, uh, because what does it mean to be human? The image of God. That's what it means to be human. So, in turn, you know, that Christ shows man to man, uh, Gaudium et Spes' teaching, uh, that, uh, which, which really uh, enlivened uh, John Paul's thinking, and uh, that, uh, that you see that in being, come, in being divinized, we become more truly what we're meant to be, the image of God. Okay? And, you, and you can think about the ramifications of that for our human life. Okay, because, because we're talking about something real here. Real, okay? Something real. Now, in terms of teachings of witnesses to, say, to the sacred tradition, uh, in the second century, St. Irenaeus of Lyon, uh, who was a, a Greek writer in France uh, uh, at that time, wrote a, a long work in five books called Against the Heresies. Uh, and in the preface to book five, he says, Christ, out of his own immense love, became what we are, so as to perfect us to be what he himself is. Okay? Out of his own immense love, his own immense love, became what we are so as to perfect us to be what he himself is. That's, that's the mystery we're celebrating. Uh, St. Athanasius uh, is particularly famous uh, for his theology of divinization. In his On the Incarnation, he writes, for he was made man that we might be made God. For he was made man, that we might be made God. 
Okay? Now, the, the Greek uh, can be translated in different ways, but this is one typical way. Okay? And sometimes people get hang up, hung up uh, God with a capital G or a little g. Okay? When Athanasius was writing, actually, all letters were capitals. Uh, there were no minuscules. Because you might look at that and you think, that mm, God with a capital G. Uh, in fact, St. Gregory of Nazianzus, who coined the term theosis, uh, he, so in terms of that very word theosis, uh, the title of, of, of the talk, that term goes to St. Gregory of Nazianzus. And by the way, if you'd like to ha have a book about this, Christ in the Life and Teaching of Gregory of Nazianzus, so I did my dissertation and then revised it for this book. And it's in the bibliography at the end. But Gregory uh, uh, wants to be clear that he says, uh, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, Three persons, God. And nothing else is God in the same way as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? Nothing else. Recall that the whole thing is a process being made God. The Son was not made God. The Holy Spirit was not made God. When the, when the Father generated the Son from all eternity, the Father begat the Son, and, uh, and the Holy Spirit proceeded from all eternity, from outside of all time. They were not made God. They were not made God. Okay, so that's why in terms of deification, it's always a creature who doesn't cease being a creature, but is um, sharing in something of the divine. Okay, so that's what is meant by theosis. Sometimes people say, well, it's just in the West, uh, East. Well, St. Augustine of Hippo, our great North African doctor who died in 430, says in a sermon, we carry mortality about with us, we endure infirmity, we look forward to divinity. For God wishes not only to vivify us, but also to deify us. When would human infirmity ever have dared to hope for this unless divine truth had promised it? It's the, remember the, great pro, the very great and precious promises. This is, this is the promise of God. And Augustine knew that. Another example, uh, in terms of continuing in the West, going to the Middle Ages, is St. Catherine of Siena, another uh, Dominican doctor of the church after St. Albert the Great and St. Thomas Aquinas. One line that kind of typifies her spirituality is this, love transforms one into what one loves. Think about that for a moment. Love transforms one into what one loves. Okay. Because love is a union. And she uses this principle precisely in terms of thinking about how we can love God and be transformed into God. That's what she says. In fact, that's what she hears God say to her. Yeah, there's this uh, book, it's a very fine book, that is a collection of essays called Called to Be the Children of God, uh, edited by Father David McConey, uh, who's, uh, who's actually the leading expert uh, on Augustinian deification, and Carl Olson, who has done so much good work uh, in terms of Ignatius Press and, and many things. And it's subtitled The Catholic Theology of Human Deification. And uh, I was asked to write the essay on, on Dominicans. And I just want you to hear something from St. Catherine of Siena's dialogue. In the dialogue's prologue, Catherine reports the Lord's message of love. Open your mind's eye and look within me, says the Lord, 
and you will see the dignity and beauty of my reasoning creature. The dialogue continues, but beyond the beauty, I have given the soul by creating her in my image and likeness. Look at those who are clothed in the wedding garment of charity, adorned with many true virtues. They are united with me through love. Catherine thus sees that the life of grace, offering the theological virtues, raises the soul to be in union with the Lord in his own divine charity. Another quotation, so I say, if you should ask me who they are, I would answer, said the gentle loving word, that they are another me. For they have lost and drowned their own will and have clothed themselves and united themselves and conformed themselves with mine. They are another me. They are another me. Saint Catherine loved to call the Pope sweet Christ on earth. It's a beautiful title for the Bishop of Rome, that the Pope is sweet Christ on earth. Some people remember that, but they don't remember that for Catherine, every Christian is another Christ. Altar Christus is a beautiful title for a priest in the tradition. But what Catherine hears from the word is that each one united in love to me, the word, is another me. That's what she hears. That's at the very beginning of the dialogue. And that runs through her whole spirituality. She has this sense of fire. In a striking phrase, she prays to God about her nature is that of the creator. She prays, in your nature, eternal Godhead, I shall come to know my nature. And what is my nature, boundless love? It is fire. Because you are nothing but a fire of love. And you have given humankind a share in this nature. For by the fire of love, you created us. So think about fire fire. Some of the fathers of the church and then others continue this, that, that particularly in the Holy Eucharist, we receive the divine fire. And the nature of fire is that when it goes to something that's flammable, it ignites it. So in terms of our souls, our souls in a sense are flammable materials. <laughs> that when we go and receive the Holy Eucharist, it's like the coal that came, the burning coal that came to the prophet Isaiah and came to his lips and touched him and purified him. Various saints have said that the fire of the Eucharist gets inside of us. And the more we have desire, the more we love, the more our fire can be blazing, the more and more godlike we can be. That's what St. Catherine understands, you know, when she's, my nature is fire. Why? Because she's been made to be like the nature of God himself. And she experiences that in the sacramental life. Another example is Blessed Columba Marmion. So he was a, a great Benedictine spiritual writer, originally from Ireland, who went to Belgium, and he died in 1923. And he says, by grace, we are raised above our nature. We become, in a way, gods. We become not equal to, but like God. Okay. We become not equal to, but like God. Blessed Columba Marmion repeatedly has this emphasis on divine adoption. So the very meaning of our baptismal life, uh, that we become sons and daughters of God. And so, in a sense, we become gods. Uh, he, he was a Thomist, 
and he brought St. Thomas's teaching uh, into this, uh, this way of speaking in the early uh, 20th century. And it was just, it's very beautiful. Many more people are discovering the, the great wisdom of Blessed Columba Marmion. Now, besides the teachings of witnesses to sacred tradition, uh, I'd like for us, for us to consider simply all saints, all right? Because it's one thing to hand a person a book, okay? Here's a book, okay? It's another thing to hand a person your life. And if your life is holy, how then you really do testify to divinization. That's what the saints, whether they've been canonized or not, have done for about 2,000 years now. In terms of our church, that saints' lives show us the power of divinization. Every saint is a holy one. Holy? You alone are the holy one. You alone are the holy one. Do you see what Christ as alone the Holy One does? The Holy One then incorporates us into his holiness, okay? And incorporates, brings us into his body. And so the saints, uh, whether they are famous or obscure, every Holy One is someone divinized, deified, who communicates the Lord's own holiness. Now I'd like for us to consider especially one holy one, and that is the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God. And for us to see this in terms of deification, so Jesus is the eternal Son of God made man. Okay, so he was God from all eternity, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He's the one, he's the one who then took flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary and was born for our salvation so that we might be reborn. Well, the Virgin Mary was deified from the first moment of her conception. She didn't always exist. She was always in the mind of God. Then again, you and I were always in the mind of God. Okay, so that's a, that's a matter of his eternal providence. She had a special place particularly in terms of this role of the Incarnation to be the mother of God. And so of all the saints, she is most resplendent. You are all beautiful and there is no spot in you. From the first moment of her conception, she was immaculate. And Mary, throughout her life, grew in holiness. Have you ever thought about that? So that, that Mary grew in holiness. She grew in acts of faith, hope, and charity. Sometimes people just say, oh, well, she was perfect from the first moment of her conception. Well, yes, she was perfect from the first moment of her conception. And in her life, she continued to grow. Okay, because she who knew not sin continued to grow greatly in terms of her faith, hope, charity. And then to think about the titles of Our Lady. Uh, and how some of the titles of Our Lady could be titles of the Lord. And then you might think, uh, well, some people object to certain titles. So let's just take the Hail Holy Queen. Okay, the Hail Holy Queen. Hail Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy. Hail our life, our sweetness, our hope. Okay, so holy. Okay, is she holy? Yes. 
Are we all meant to be holy? Yes. Okay. And if someone is objecting to, to Marian piety or Marian titles and think it's detracting from God. No, God wants us to share in his holiness. God wants us to reign with him. That's what it says in the book of Revelation. Okay, so Mary, holy queen. We are called to reign with Jesus. Uh, she, in a special way, is mother of mercy. But also notice how if you beget mercy, in some way, you too can be mother of mercy, father of mercy. St. Augustine is explicit in one place uh, where he says, do you want to be a mother of Christ? If you do, bring someone to the baptismal font because there you'll become a mother of Christ. Okay? Again, a Christian is someone in Christ. So another Christ. Hail Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy. Hail our life, our sweetness, and our hope. So in terms of our life, think about our Lord. Our Lord is our life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay? These Marian titles are not detracting from Christ, but actually showing the fulfillment. Christ came to save. Christ came to save. And so Mary is the most remarkable of all God's works. And so it's the purest example, the purest example of deification, divinization. So really, uh, if you if you can think about how some people give objections to Marian titles and Marian piety, you could go to the, the, the thinking about deification divinization. Now, sometimes people could be the same people who object to Marian titles, object to divinization. Do you see how the two go hand in hand? So, so just in terms of making those connections and then thinking about, well, what is the Christian faith all about? So what we're going to do now is to revisit those objections. So I have on this handout replies to four objections. So I'd like for us to consider these four objections and then to uh, go through them. So let's remember that first objection was, that doesn't sound Christian. I've been a Christian all my life and I've never heard that we are made gods. That sounds like it's something pagan, Mormon, or New Age. The reply. Only Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God. No more, no less. Yet the Trinitarian intention is to raise us creatures made to God's image to receive the Holy Spirit and be adopted in the Son so as to call out Abba, Father. Non-Christian divinization offers adherents some other non-Christian goal. Okay. So in terms of the Christian faith, Christian divinization is precisely what the whole thing is about. That God made us for a reason to be in his image and that, uh, that there's something real here where we are we're to look like God. Okay, in terms of the image, look like in terms of image of God. And in terms of being light for the world. And then to consider non-Christian divinization offers adherence some other non-Christian goal. I'll give you an example of Clement of Alexandria, who was writing around the year 200. He wrote a work called the Protrepticus, where he wanted people to enter the Christian faith. It was an exhortation to persuade people to enter the Christian faith. And he looked at all the different Greek gods that were rather lascivious. Okay, so they were kind of lustful, they were lustful, and how these people 
were being transformed into their gods in terms of their behaviors. The Greek gods were, frankly, immoral. Okay? So his point was, if you have those things for your gods, guess what you're going to be? Immoral. If you have a, something of stone, an idol, so something of metalwork as your god, your heart will become like that. Okay? You'll have a heart of stone. And so not everybody on this earth has the same goal. All right? Sometimes Christians kind of think, oh, everybody kind of wants to be like that. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay? No, people have different goals. And for us to respect that. And for, for Clement, it's like, oh, so if they think that their gods are that way, well, they will then go in that direction. But then he sees that the Son of God uh, has given us a new song that has stirred our hearts and that to, then we can be divinized in the mysteries. And so, so then become baptized and experience the new life of Christians. Right? So that's the reply to that first objection. Uh, that, uh, that there's something particularly Christian in this Christian form of divinization, but it is true that there are other forms of divinization. And then they, those people want to become like their own gods. Okay, so whatever that is. Uh, and you just say, okay, the word divinization or deification can be used in different ways. This is what we mean by it in our Christian religion. The second objection, Remember, it's about pride. The second objection, that sounds like the height of blasphemy. Consider the serpent's words to trick Eve. You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, the reply. Adam and Eve were tricked to think that they could be gods through their own snatching. God wanted them, and wants us, to receive divine life as a gift. A gift given to us because of Jesus Christ, our humble mediator. Right? So, in terms of wanting to be like God, what's wrong with that? In fact, God wants us to be like him. That was the whole point, the whole point of our creation. Um, but there was a test, and so that we see that it's not a matter of snatching it, like snatching fruit from a tree. Uh, the Lord, as we read in Philippians chapter 2, did not deem equality with God something to be grasped, okay? Rather, he emptied himself. The Lord Jesus is the humble mediator. And in order for us to be exalted, we need to go down, okay? In order for us to go to heaven, we need to go down, far down. And by the way, that's where we find Jesus. St. Augustine, in one place, talks about how he finds Jesus as the way. There at his feet, his feet. After all, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, Jesus wants us to walk on the way. That's what God has done for us. He has shown us the way to heaven through the path of humility. And that divinization occurs only because of creature humility in accepting the humble mediator of God, the humble mediator who comes to us at our feet. So rather than being a blasphemy in terms of pride, 
divinization in its authentic Christian form is precisely humility. Going down to Jesus. For the one who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, the third uh, objection is that nonsense comes from Greek mythology and philosophy tainted uh, Eastern Christianity. In the West, we have the pure Christian faith of being saved from our sins through justification by the blood of Jesus. Well, the beauty of divinization is found in both East and West. It is true, though, it has been muted in Western modernity. Okay, so, uh, and there are, uh, uh, there are various reasons for this, uh, not good reasons, okay? Uh, but, there, uh, but something happened where people of all sorts kind of lost something that was so central to the Christian faith. And what divinization uh, is all about is precisely this life of grace. Grace is meant to transform us we don't believe that grace just covers us and doesn't transform, but again, grace um, doesn't destroy nature, but heals and elevates it. Grace perfects nature. And so this healing and elevating is lifting nature up. Now, in terms of a couple examples from Thomists, okay, so from students of St. Thomas Aquinas in the 20th century, the great summa of theology of St. Thomas Aquinas was translated twice into English in, this, in the 20th century. And I'd like for you to consider uh, the third part, question 37, article three, the reply to the second objection. Okay, so uh, like if we were doing this, this would be the reply to the third objection. If this were something found, found in the page of St. Thomas, because we're doing the third, reply to the third objection. Well, St. Thomas is writing in Latin and he's actually echoing uh, the Greek father, St. Athanasius. And literally in the Latin, it says, so that he might make us gods through grace so that he might make us gods through grace. The thing about it is, if you go back to the two translations in English that are available, uh, one uh, from the early 20th century from the English Dominican province, translates it as make us to be gods, G-O-D apostrophe S. Okay, so it sounds the same, make us to be gods, but it's make us to be gods, Okay. And then the second translation is make us sons of God. Okay. Um, are both of those correct in terms of theology? Yes, both of them are correct in terms of theology. But it's not a good idea to correct St. Thomas, <laughs> usually. And uh, when St. Thomas is following St. Athanasius, maybe you should just go ahead and translate what St. Thomas has. <laughs> Okay, because what St. Thomas has literally is that he might make us gods, G-O-D-S, no apostrophe, through grace. Uh, that's the teaching, okay? For some reason, it was obscured, okay? Uh, um, yes, we belong to God, so we belong, so G-O-D, apostrophe, yes. Yes, we become children of God, sons and daughters of God, sons of God, whatever. Yes, that's, that's true. So I'm not saying it's false but it's just not faithful to what St. Thomas actually wrote. It's not faithful to what St. Athanasius wrote. So to be uh, attentive to how something w really was lost, and that's why I think there's a certain excitement today when people hear divinization or deification, that people are wondering, now what is that? So then we go on to that fourth, uh, reply to the fourth objection, 
the objection was, it's too good to be true. It's too good to be true. Um, you know, because after all, I just want to get through my day. I, I, you know, I have all these pains. I have all these sufferings. I just, I'll settle, okay? I, uh, I don't want to go to hell. <laughs> right? I don't want to go to hell. You want to go to hell? I don't want to. Okay. So really, becoming gods or all this, too good to be true. The, the reply to the objection is, it's true. <laughs> it's true. Divinization is how God loves us. Divinization is how God loves us. St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, famous for her spirituality of the Trinitarian indwelling, says in one of her last writings, let yourself be loved. Let yourself be loved. Think about that. Now, if someone who's loving you is uh, self-interested, is uh, not a person you trust, okay, then, uh, then I'd say, don't let yourself be loved by that person, all right? But if it's God, and God has no need of us, God doesn't gain anything from us. God just simply loves us. It is fantastic. It's wonderful. It's true. It's true. Let yourself be loved. Sometimes we put up all sorts of barriers. We put up all sorts of obstacles. No, I don't. Yeah, I, let yourself be loved. It's what our life is meant to be, to be loved by God. So I know that uh, we're going to be taking a break and we'll be, be able to have some time for questions and answers. But I thought we could all uh, be inspired by St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, who was just canonized uh, last fall, this great Carmelite mystic who died in 1906 uh, in her Dijon Carmelite monastery. And I'd like for us to pray the beginning of her beautiful prayer, uh, the famous prayer, the beginning of it is quoted in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So I have it here on that handout. And if we could just kind of pray that all together, and I encourage you to pray that aloud. So we'll do that, uh, and then we'll take our break. Oh my God, Trinity whom I adore, help me forget myself entirely so to establish myself in you, unmovable and peaceful as if my soul were already in eternity. May nothing be able to trouble my peace or make me leave you, O oh my unchanging God. But may each minute bring me more deeply into your mystery. Grant my soul peace. Make it your heaven, your beloved dwelling, and the place of your rest. May I never abandon you there, but may I be there whole and entire, completely vigilant in my faith, entirely adoring, and wholly given over to creative action. Amen. Thank you very much. All right, so for question and answer, who's first? How could we be gods when we're not, we're not omnipotent, we're not the creator, we're not all-knowing, we're not unchanging, and that's what we think of as the essence of God. Of God. Okay, thank you very much. So, uh, so this is where, in terms of the characteristics of God, so in terms of power, uh, knowing, uh, God actually wants us to be transformed now by grace so that we can have a certain power. 
the Blessed Virgin Mary has a title of Omnipotent by Grace. Uh, yeah, so it's not one of the most popular titles, but, her, <laughs> but in the sense that she can do anything in terms of that she's so united to God that she has this ability to be able to, to be joined to God and share in his power. And then you think about, well, what kind of power is this? Do you remember what Jesus said uh, that those who believe in him will do his works and will do greater things than he did? Okay, it's in John's gospel that Jesus actually says his disciples will do his works and will do even greater ones. And you think, really, he says that? Yes, he does. And St. Thomas Aquinas comments, well, Christ does all sorts of works. And the thing about it is that when we cooperate in justification, which is precisely in, in communicating that divinizing grace, it's a greater work than creating. Okay, why? Well, for St. Thomas Aquinas, a soul in grace is worth more than the entire universe of nature. A soul in grace is worth more than the entire universe of nature. And uh, when you become an instrument uh, in divinization. It's not as if you're doing something separate from Christ, because it's actually Christ who's at work in you, but now at work in you and with you. And that's greater than the Lord creating heaven and earth in a certain, in a certain sense. And that's the power of grace. A soul in grace is worth more than the entire universe of just simply nature. And so that's what I mean in terms of Our Lady being omnipotent in grace, you know, not the same as God's all-powerful, but that she has a, a wondrous power that should be respected. And that in terms of knowledge, when you believe in God, you actually know God. And then in heaven, it's the beatific vision where you don't comprehend God. No saint can ever comprehend God. The Blessed Virgin Mary cannot comprehend God in terms of that full comprehension. Only God knows God in that way. But at the same time, there's something very full. For however our souls are, our souls will be completely filled with God in heaven. So that's why, yes, and actually, there's something about the power of grace and the power of glory that we really can celebrate. Thank you, Father. We have a question coming in from online. Paul from Reston asks, is there a distinction between divine filiation and divinization? Not really. So in terms of divine filiation, uh, so filiation means to become a son or daughter, and how precisely as being divine, divine filiation, that that's what it means for us to become divinized, is that we become children of God. So it's, a, it's a yet another way of expressing the same mystery. What needs to occur is that people actually understand how children look like their parents. Children are in some way to act like their parents. And we have become children of God. That's the mystery of divinization. Hi, this is the follow-up. I hear people say about you know, anyone in the world, non-Christians included, specifically in this question, oh, he's a child of God. That, what I'm hearing you say, that's not precisely right. The ones who are the children of God are those who have received sanctifying grace, right? Right, thank you for that. In some sense, and the Catechism does address this, 
that it also, you can take it as child of God or image of God and look at it in the three levels. Recall the, th the three levels, nature, grace, glory. For all by human nature are in some sense children of God. All can look to God as the creator and father. And so in some sense, on that level, there's something in terms of the image of God or child of God that's common throughout all human nature. Okay, so that all human beings share in this nature, and just by having that nature, in some sense, there's an image of God, in some sense, that God is Father. But in the life of grace, we receive the adoption, okay, in terms of the, the uh, divine filiation, where we receive the spirit of adoption so that in Christ, in Christ who is the only Son of God, okay, by nature, only Son of God by nature, that we then uh, are adopted into that life and so can cry out, Abba, Father. So this is where there's a more special emphasis on children of God or image of God within that life of grace. And that prepares us finally for that third level of glory. So that's why sometimes people um, can uh, use it in a restrictive way, precisely in terms of, children, uh, of grace, but actually that just to be able to appreciate the ambiguity and then, or, or the distinctions, and that even in terms of all human nature, all human beings by nature uh, are children of God or image of God. You know, my question is, uh, uh, how are we divinized by the Eucharist? So thank you. Uh, in terms of, of the Eucharist, think about the Eucharist as the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. So why does Christ come to us? Why on the night before he died, did he say, this is my body? You know, um, he didn't leave us a book, okay? He left us himself, okay? Because he, after all, is the Holy One and he gives us his own life. Well, his own life is given to us so that we might be in communion with him, that we might become the body of Christ. So the body of Christ is given to us so that we may be incorporated into him and become more and more truly the body of Christ. So the Eucharist is the sacrament of all sacraments. So all the other sacraments are ordered to the Eucharist in one way or another. Okay, so baptism is often seen as that sacrament of, of new life. So in this special way, the sacrament of baptism uh, is a sacrament of divinization, but it leads to the Eucharist and how in terms of that reception of the Eucharist, that we, uh, we become what we receive. Okay, now sometimes people could distort that in, in a particular way, but the reason why Christ gave us his body was that we would eat and become what he is. That's the mystery of the Eucharist. It's, it's a divinizing mystery. And if you pay special close attention to the prayers and thanks to the new Roman Missal translation, you can hear that more, particularly in the post-communion prayers. So this, this repeats, uh, I gave you an example of a collect. So what it used to be known as the opening prayer of the mass from the Annunciation, but especially in that post-communion prayer because it, it's presumed that people have received communion and that there's a special prayer that relates precisely in terms of the action of communion with our transformation. Thank you. You said Mary grew in grace here on earth. Mm -hmm. Will she grow in grace in heaven and also will we? Thank you. So the Western tradition is that in heaven, 
there's a perfection as soon as you see God in a perfection in which there's, there's a complete living out, okay, and a, a wonderful activity, but not in the sense of growing in love, okay? In the East, uh, and properly today, St. Gregory of Nyssa is becoming uh, more and more well-known. He has a sense, uh, in terms of the Greek tradition, of a perfection that is actually a growth, okay? So to give two examples of Augustine in the West and Gregory of Nyssa in the East, for Augustine, and St. Thomas Aquinas continues this and many other people continue this, uh, is that there's a perfection and there's, as perfect, there's no more growth. Whereas uh, for Gregory of Nyssa, just as there's growth here in grace on this life on earth, so there's a following of the Lord in heaven, a following of the Lord in heaven. What I would like to emphasize is just in terms of our uh, Western or the Western tradition, it's not meant to be static, okay? So because sometimes people think of heaven and it just sounds <gasps> boring, <laughs> you're boring. Who would want to go there? Okay, yeah. So this perfection is not a boring perfection. No, 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 no. And, and so that, there, that there's this ineffable beatitude, this unspeakable happiness that's there all at once at heaven. Okay, um, so in terms of uh, your question, uh, I don't think the Blessed Virgin Mary is continuing to grow because glory is, is a different state from, our, from this state of grace here that we find on earth. Good evening. Yes, uh, thank you very much for this wonderful talk. I wondered uh, if you could tell me if the, it seems to me that the, the, there's, there's not been as direct an emphasis on the difference between created versus uncreated grace in the Latin West in the last millennium. And related to that, it also seems to me that perhaps there is some subtle differentiation between the concept of theosis as has developed in the East and the beatific vision as was popular in the medieval West and continues to be influential today. How would you describe what the, the, the specific difference between theosis is and the beatific vision is and also is there some way in which there has, where is the tradition of, of uncreated versus created grace present in the Latin West? It seems very common in the East, but it seems like it's, it's not overtly obvious, like it's a, it became, it disappeared in the last thousand years. That's at least my superficial observation. What can you tell me? Okay, so these are different theologies that developed in the Christian tradition. And in terms of the question of grace and created grace, uncreated grace, I'd refer you to a book in the Select Bibliography by Darius Pisano called The Glory of God's Grace, Deification According to St. Thomas Aquinas. Okay, so it's, a, it's the book in the world uh, that uh, gives a beautiful exposition of what St. Thomas means by deification. Now, in terms of created and uncreated, for St. Thomas Aquinas, grace, in terms of grace in our soul, is a habitus, which means, a, uh, in this case, a disposition that is about the entire soul, and so that God is present, the uncreated God is present in our soul by grace, and that grace itself is created, okay? So that what happens is the soul is recreated, 
Okay, so the new creation. So from a Thomistic point of view, that this grace of our soul shows that God himself is present. Yeah, uh, my father and I will come to him, Jesus says. And so that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have a, this Trinitarian indwelling in the soul. And we prayed about that in St. Elizabeth of the Trinity's prayer. Well, in order for God to be working in that soul, what God does is he then changes the soul. So God, who is present, then has uh, the soul transformed. And so Westerners will use the phrase created grace or this could be called created grace, because then it shows the effect that, that we remain creatures. Okay? In our divinization, we remain creatures, and so the grace that's at work in our soul recreates us, and then uh, it's not as if God and the human being doesn't change, but the human being does change, is recreated, and so that's created grace. Um, Easterners have a different approach to this, um, which also uh, emphasizes God's energies, so energia, uh, the energies or workings or activities with a difference between God's energies and God's essence. Uh, that just cannot be found in St. Thomas Aquinas and really for the Western tradition. And that would be a whole different talk, but there's a different theology, a different spirituality. What I've emphasized is more the commonality. And then in terms of heaven, what uh, the Western tradition especially emphasizes is that creatures can see God's essence, actually. That's what makes us happy. But in seeing God, there's no uh, comprehension in terms of a fullness that as God knows God. So there's a seeing God according to our capacity that is lifted up by the light of glory. Whereas in the East, generally, that in heaven, People say that they, you don't see God's essence, but it's a continuation in terms of God's energies, okay? So this gets into very complicated theologies and spiritualities, and, um, and so my lecture avoided some of the technical discussions because I think so much has been made of technical discussions in some areas that it actually destroys the very central idea that really needs to be told. So I just want us to, to think about what's central and then you can really get into different kinds of theological and spirituality speculations. But it's a great, it's a great question. Thank you. Thank you, Father. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.